1: what if I am put in Slytherin? Albus Severus Potter. You were named after two headmasters of Hogwarts. One of them was a Slytherin. And he was the bravest man I've ever known. But just say that I am... Then Slytherin House will have gained a wonderful young wizard. But listen. If it really means that much to you, you can choose Gryffindor. The Sorting Hat takes your choice into account. Really? Really. Ready? Ready. Welcome, everyone, to the Leaky Cauldron 602 slash thing, because that's what we're doing again. We're doing the very last Harry Potter movie here in the Harry Potter series. Of course, we'll be continuing on with the Harry Potter universe. Do they call it that? The HPU, you think? I think that works.
0: I like it. It sounds like a school.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I like school. It does kind of sound like a (laughs) HPU. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about fantastic pieces, where to find them. We're finally at a brand new something in, in Rowling's world that she's written. And I can't wait. But before we do that, we've reached Harry Potter and the Deathly Howls part two. And I'm so excited to actually be here. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, before we dive in, I've got to let everybody know, of course, you can find all the shows on Trek FM at itunes.com. That's the best place to find us. We're a feature provider there over on iTunes. And while you're there, give us a star rating and review because that really helps out the show. Uh, and it does wonders for helping people find us. Really want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has been going over and reviewing the 602 Club recently. We've gotten some amazing new reviews, and it means the world to me. These the reviews we've been getting. Thank you so much. In fact, honestly, within the last like week, we've gotten four new reviews. We've said thank you to you uh, over the last uh, few times, and we have a new review, and it's from Myopic Eagle, and they say great general geekery. Five stars. Thank you so much. You guys are doing amazing stuff for the show, and I I just pour out the love to you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me that you're supporting the show like that. Of course, you can find us on Trek FM's Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. If you want to join in in the discussion with all the other fans of Trek FM, go to our listeners-only discussion group, the Babel Conference there on Facebook. You can type Babel into the search field on Facebook. Or you can go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. If you like to leave voicemails, you can do that, speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. And last but not least, you can also send us an email. I've gotten some emails recently. Really appreciate that. And that's at trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. And that comes straight to me. And then I get to forward that to whoever was on uh, the show recently. I just want a huge thank you for uh, Greg Mullenby sending in a great email when we... did a so really appreciate that. Got to forward that to Richard and Ken, and honestly, it made our days. So <sighs> we're here, Drea. We're at the end. I know
0: we're at the end. I'm both happy and sad at the same time.
1: I know, I know. I I feel like we're gonna open at the close, though. Oh, so, oh, yeah, that was I so think good, it's be good. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask you about that because I remember you know, when the movie came out and the book had already come out. So this really did feel like the end of Harry Potter as, you know, we never thought we'd see the universe again, really. Um, she had already said she really wasn't, good, her plan wasn't to write anything else. You know, we had no idea was there was going to be a Pottermore website or Cursed Child or, you know, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. This just kind of, it reminded me of when Revenge of the Sith ended and everybody was like, well, Star Wars is over because we made it to the end of the beginning (laughs) yeah exactly so uh, how did you feel when when you got to this point in the harry potter fandom is just really at its peak
0: um that's an excellent question because i did get to this when it came out so it felt like the end but for some reason i just couldn't believe it was real like it was really the end and it wasn't. So <laughs> I was right. Good job, self. But I think it was nice. It's nice to have an ending. It's nice to have something close. And I like that she's continued on in the universe in other ways and not just kept doing Harry Potter. So I, I, I think I was like mournful or sorrowfully accepting of it And that's probably why I also like a lot of the British shows and and storylines that we get from like BBC because they, they generally tell a story and then end and they don't go on for 12 seasons or 22 seasons of something when you're totally done with it at season four. So yeah, I I think I had come to a place of acceptance (laughs) with it and I was, I'm happy to keep getting what she gives us because it's, it's all very thoughtful, which I appreciate.
1: I I'm right there with you. I think I'm in the exact same position of loving British things, especially television, because mm-hmm. like you said, they have no problem with doing three seasons and then being done. And, you know, I honestly think that any series is best when it's planned out and most of that plan comes to fruition. You know, uh, Rolling will tell you... There are certain things that changed, uh but it wasn't anything major. She knew where the series was going to end, and she knew she how she was going to end it uh you know some people you know changed, and who died. There are a couple of those kind of things. There were some other minor things that changed throughout the series, but a lot of it very much stayed the same because she had it in her mind where this story was going and I think that if you do read through the books. You really pick up on that sense because so much of it are little breadcrumbs placed all over the place, you know, little puzzle pieces dropped. And if you were smart enough to be able to pick out all those puzzle pieces, you could have put the whole thing together before the end. But I don't think actually anybody really was able to do that.
0: No, I I mean, and then after it happened, people started to make up things that they thought were there that weren't, like the snake being Nagini, the snake in the first book being Nagini, and a few other things that people put together, and later she had to be like, no, that wasn't it. So it just shows you how, I mean we're looking for things that aren't there because like she has woven so much through the story that you expect to find these things. It's not surprising that that, if that had been the case and I still think that um, she, she wishes she'd done that,
1: <laughs> but <laughs> it's too late. So, well, and that's that, I mean, if you watch any of the extras, you know, there were sometimes there were things that they did in the films that she really liked, you know, uh, she like in the third movie, she loved the little uh, dead head things hanging uh places. Oh yeah. She yeah. loved those. She th- she's like, I wish I had created them. Uh she felt the same way. Um she liked the large Celtic stones in the ground, uh that uh Alfonso Cuarón had added in in the third movie there leading down to Hagrid's. Uh she approved of the clock tower uh, that they created as well, even though that wasn't in her original mindset for the castle and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, I liked that she appreciated how people added to her world and really saw her world in their mind's eye. And if there was ever a time where she said no, uh, they listened to her. But for the most part, she allowed them to have some creative freedom with what she had done. And I think it, it... when it when it comes to the films, if there's anything you can say about them, the production value and what they created and the look of the world is pretty spot on. I, I, there's there's no part when I'm like, oh,
0: I didn't no, no, I didn't see it that way. Or, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I think they do a pretty good job in that. So,
0: well, and we've talked about all the various directors and that we've gotten throughout the series. But I also like how even though we got different directors, all the films got progressively darker, just like all the books got progressively darker. It visually got darker as you you went through to the point where like there was a few moments where you're like, I literally can't tell what's going on right now. But it it followed that pattern that you have in the book. It was a, a great visual representation of the whole series.
1: Well, and speaking of, of directors, you know, David Yates was the director of the last five Harry Potter movies and, of course, is going to be an announced that he will be directing all of the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them films as well. And so he will have directed a majority of the Harry Potter universe by the time we are done. But I think at this point, it's good because it creates a, a very consistent look. Mm-hmm. Even though we're back in a time period we've never been in before, except for maybe I mean, we haven't been that far back in flashbacks, except mm-hmm. for, I guess, Tom Riddle as a child. When we visited him.
0: In the orphanage?
1: Yeah, that's pretty far back. because Is that,
0: he, that, is, is that even far enough, though?
1: Because Riddle graduates in, I think, Hogwarts 1945.
0: Well, he's the same age as Hagrid, because Hagrid was in his class and was expelled. Right.
1: and Hagrid's pretty old.
0: Yeah, so I'm the, not sure. I mean, older than we
1: would, you know. I assume. On, yeah. yeah,
0: I don't know, and I don't know when exactly Fantastic Beasts. That I'm trying to not know anything about it. It's so in the I don't, 20s. Okay, so, so I, I don't know the almost exact there, thing. but maybe yeah, not yeah. quite.
1: So, uh, yeah, but I mean, that's such a small segment of when we see anyway. So Yeah, well, and it's a
0: different country because Fantastic Beasts is set in New York, I think. Mm -hmm. So you're in a completely different country as well. So even if you're in the same time period, you're not in the same geographic location. No,
1: no. And New York is very different than Mm -hmm. London. So, yes, you're exactly right.
0: But we're getting continuity regardless. You're getting a, a, a consistent message from the wizarding world regardless of where you are or when you are, which is, I think, good.
1: Yes. Oh, yes. Coming full circle here then with just what we were talking about with the end. I think what I love about the Harry Potter series is there kind of is a definite end to it. And um, I guess a quick aside before I even jump into the rest of the movie, because I, I, I don't know, we might talk about it on the show, but I guess a quick, how do you feel about The Cursed Child?
0: I have also not seen or read that yet. Okay. Okay. I know. I I tried to do them one at a time. I'll probably pick it up after I do Fantastic Beasts this weekend. But
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah. That is okay then. Uh, I will say that I enjoyed the story. It was, it was very interesting. And doing a little bit of rereading as we've been doing this series, found some of the evidences for where she took. That uh, that one? The, yeah.
0: I know so. a few pe- I guess I'm hesitant. I've heard a few things from it. From the storyline and from where where we pick up the trio at, I guess. And I didn't I didn't like what I'd heard, so I was just hesitant to read it because I don't want to be disappointed when I read it. Like I don't want to be upset with what she did with the characters. So I'm trying to like hold on to what I know and love a little bit.
1: So it's probably it's probably not healthy, <laughs> but I should probably just read it. But No, I, I think I think um I went in with the same fears and I didn't come out with any of those feelings.
0: Okay. That's good to know.
1: Right. And I I I generally enjoyed the the storyline. I thought it was I thought it was good. So it was definitely very different because it's a play. Yeah. And it made me want to see the play or have them almost basically make a movie of it cuz <laughs> At this point, that would be great too. Uh, Well, it
0: won't surprise me if they do like a a filmed stage version. How they do a lot of the operas uh, and stuff now. If they do something like that, where they do a theatrical feature of the stage performance, that would be
1: nice. You could do that, or um, well, and I don't know if Warner Brothers would let them do this, especially if they own the rights. But I could see them making a BBC series of it. You know, mini series like of seven episodes or something. Please let them do it. (laughs) Yeah, that would be great. Uh, I would love that. I think um, the, the thing to me that was really interesting watching *Deathly Hallows* Part Two, and this is something that really struck me, uh, because the movie starts off really quickly. You know, we we get them. Uh, you know, Harry's buried, Dolby, and then he's questioning Grip Hook. He's questioning Ollivander about the wand and. They put this plan together very quickly to go to Gringotts and get in the vault because Harry's figured out there's something in there that they need. And it was really fascinating to me because I'd never thought this before, but when they arrive at the albino dragon, the way that they treat that dragon struck something in me that everybody in this this universe seems to have the little people that they mistreat, whether that's a species or an actual being. You know, whether it's a, a, as um, Newt Scaramander puts it in Fantastic Beasts and Where to buy, Find Them. Where it's to buy them? A, I'll buy them. Uh, tell tell me where to buy them, <laughs> Scaramander. <laughs> it's either a being or a beast. That's mm-hmm. how they separate, or the spirit world with ghosts. And so whether it's being or beast, you, you find that everyone in the Harry Potter universe either takes for granted or mistreats somebody around them. And it was interesting to me to see the goblins mistreat this dragon so horribly. I mean, you know, uh, and in Her- Hermione has the perfect reaction of how barbaric it really is. But it, it just struck me that it, it really seems like... The only character who doesn't have this... Now, Harry doesn't like everybody. And he doesn't always treat everybody well. You know, whether it's like a Snape or something like that. But Harry doesn't have, I think, those outright biases towards certain beings or whatever. And that really comes into play in the movie. And I thought that was really special because... You know, we get that with Grip Hook, who says, "You know, you buried the elf."
0: House yeah.
1: And I've never seen anybody treat an elf basically like that ever in the wizarding world. You're a very different type of wizard. And I, I just, it struck me again the way that the Harry and who he is and the kindnesses that he shows, all of these, you know. Desperate elements of the wizarding world that other people will overlook, whether it's a Luna or a Dobie or a creature or anybody else uh, like this, or even a Draco Malfoy. (laughs) Yeah. It's insane. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And I feel like it's almost that that idea that an outsider can bring such an interesting perspective. You know, you always hear it at work when they hire someone externally and they're like, Oh, we're looking for a fresh perspective or whatever. I feel like sometimes that actually is real. And you know, he wasn't brought up learning any of these prejudices. He wasn't brought up to know any of this information. He just knows what he knows to be right and, and wrong. And you know, he is unfailingly kind. So it's just, it's, It's a theme that she sticks to real strong throughout the entire thing, because even when it comes down to Snape being killed at the very end, I'll jump ahead of when Snape gets killed at the very end um, and Nagini attacks and then, you know, Voldemort and Nagini leave and Harry, you know, runs up to Snape, he could have just left Snape to die. There was nothing, there was no reason for him to go up and check on Snape, but even though he feels like this man killed his, you know, everyone he's ever loved and has been horrible to him, he still wanted to check on him, you know, there was no reason for it, and in doing that, he learned some, some very important information, and he he learned, you know, that looks aren't always what they seem, so it's interesting that she she hangs on to this theme and plays with it in so many different ways but it's just so down to earth and very basic and like just be kind like be kind that's all it comes down to
1: and it's interesting because you know harry may not like people but that doesn't mean that he wants necessarily ill for them you know mm-hmm. like you were saying with snape he what happens to snape is horrible Harry can recognize that even if he doesn't like him, you know, uh, Draco being left to die. That's not something that Harry is going to allow to have happen because that's not who Harry is. He, he might not like Draco, but he doesn't deserve to die in a horrible wizarding made fire that won't go out. Right. You know that that's, and I think what, what's kind of beautiful in, in, all of what we're saying is that love does really conquer all in the story. Mm -hmm. And it's not just love for one's friends, but one's enemies. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because, you know, Jesus in his most famous speech in the Sermon on Mount even says that, you know, everybody loves their friends. Even the world loves their friends, but one who loves their enemies, that's, that's a different story. And that's the kind of hero that Harry shows himself to be in this whole narrative, is that he's somebody who, when push comes to shove, he even stands up for people that were once against him. Right. And I I think that that, when we're talking about the idea of love and why Voldemort loses, it's because he has no... Idea or understanding whatsoever because he's utterly and completely self-obsessed and self-absorbed.
0: Well, and his soul is split into a million pieces, so that can't help at all. You know, well, that's
1: and, and that is part of who he has been from a very early age. He has fostered in himself this idea that it's all about him and. All that matters is him being powerful and him being awesome. And he doesn't really care about anybody else. And And maybe that's because he didn't feel like anybody cared about him. There are bits and pieces of his upbringing that we really don't know all that much about. Mm-hmm. But it seems like he was pretty jaded from an early age.
0: Yeah, but in that sense she did a nice job paralleling even the small snippets we get in the movie of paralleling how you know Tom's at or Tom Riddle's at the orphanage he's stolen he thinks that everyone thinks he's crazy you know Dumbledore shows up and shows him there's a better way which I think we learned in the second one I think that was Goblet of I think that was Chamber of Secrets where we learned some of this um I, I totally think that's wrong now, but I don't. Re- I don't remember where we came across that. But there's the little flashback, little snippet of him in the orphanage, and uh, that's uh, the
1: is that the hapless prince. Okay, that's one of the memories.
0: Okay, yeah, it's when they look in the pensive, um, and you, you know harry has a similar upbringing you could argue that the dursley's house was kind of like an orphanage for just him and that yeah. <laughs> you, you know and, and that people kept thought in he was a very small place <laughs> he was you know crazy and they thought he was worthless i mean it's the same sort of two-sided thing and it, it really comes down to like how do you choose to show up do you choose to show up and be self-obsessed and angry and better and hold the world against you or do you choose to show up and be a better person and be the bigger person and really just go with what you know to be right even if it causes harm it causes yourself to have to put your ego aside and be the better person. So it's a it's it's a theme that she really sticks with the entire book. And like you were saying earlier, she really weaves it in and she weaves it in so many different ways. And it's nice to see in this book and and particularly this part of the movie this this part two that how much she actually flushes all of it out and you finally get to kind of get that satisfaction of seeing it pay off for him you know it's I kind of it's it's kind of like the scene in the movie where he gives Dobby the the book or he gives um Lucius the book who gives it to Dobby and it's got a sock in it like that moment where you're like feeling vindicated. You're like, yeah, it, it, the whole movie, the whole end of the movie sort of felt like that to me where you're just like, yeah, there, there's still sad parts, but.
1: No, completely. Uh, and that's one of the things that I, I, I truly appreciate about the film because um, as you're saying, there are different points throughout it where that part of Harry is pointed out you know, even thinking specifically of when he's talking to the Grey Lady and she says, you're different, Mm -hmm. but you also remind me a bit of him. So there is this duality to Harry and she can sense in him, I think, the part of him that is Voldemort, but she also senses in him a person who doesn't desire the diadem for his own personal gain his desire is to put the world right.
0: Well, he's also honest with her about what he wants yes. to do and destroying it. Where most people would be like, "Oh, I want to fix it," and she, he's just like, "No, I want to destroy it." And she appreciates that sort of like moment of honesty that someone has with her.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a cool thing because it, it again, it's it's another place where we're seeing the distinction between Voldemort and Harry. And and really, I think what Rowling is trying to say is that a life lived in utter selfishness leads to ruin, just like Voldemort. You you know, you split your soul into seven pieces and you're, you're basically finding a way to mutilate yourself and destroy any part of humanity. And the greatest part of humanity, which we have, is to be more like Harry, and that is to love others... More than ourselves, and to be willing to give our lives not only for the people that we love, but maybe even the people that we hate. Uh and I think the clearest section in there about this, and I, I like it that it plays out in the movie, is when he dies. Yeah, he dies. <laughs> and not only but it's when he comes back and Narcissa Malfoy oh, says he's he like alive. My favorite part and he just gives the nod that yes your son is alive he's alive because harry saved his life
0: right i i you don't when you're first reading the book or when you're first watching this movie you do not have i mean ron curses his name hermione looks at him like he's absolutely crazy when they go back for for Draco in the room of requirement and he goes back and he's like it's just so harry so Harry, good job, Harry. Right? You're you're like okay, good, good job. And then you get to the end where he comes back, and Narcissus is the one who sent. And you just have to imagine. Oh my God! If he had let Draco die, he we would we could have potentially had a completely different outcome to the end of this whole book. And that to me is that moment where it's like you don't do it, you don't do the kindness for the payoff, but inevitably it it will come back and it will pay back to you the world will be kind to you if you're kind to it. So it it's really it, that's like my favorite like little I don't know little like plot element in this whole book and in this movie in particular is like my favorite one right there.
1: And what makes that so powerful is what we talked a little bit about the last time. Once Voldemort made the decision that Harry was the person that he would go after and he puts you know the mark on harry Mm -hmm. the prophecy becomes about harry and the only one who can destroy voldemort is harry because of who harry is he will follow the prophecy and he will follow the prophecy because of who he is it's this circle that is complete now but he makes the the choice to basically be the lamb before the slaughter and to die. I mean, he's willing to die for for everybody else because that's the only way to make sure that Voldemort is defeated. And I love the way that she does it in the book. It's it's not quite as clear in the movie. Yeah. That the reason Harry can come back is because what Voldemort has killed is the part of him, the part of his Voldemort's soul that is it, actually. He destroyed literally. the horror crux, yes, exactly in essence.
0: He destroyed himself.
1: hmm Yeah. And but it's it's that love again. And I just I love that that's the power of the story because to me the parallels with what I believe in my own life are very strong. And I always enjoy stories that that have that come about. And so I this is this is one of the reasons for me that Harry Potter has always been one of my favorite stories. And it was once I got to the end and I realized what Rowling was doing. And I was like, oh, she's she's just kind of made Harry Potter Jesus. Um and done it really well, not in a way that's pandering, or uh, it it feels uh, very true. So I I just always really enjoyed that, and I think what also made it special was the way in which, and I think for most people, that she finally explained the Snape story.
0: Yeah, that was he has a really interesting storyline, and I think I remember so shortly after Alan Rickman died. They, um, all the stories about him poured out. And I think if I remember correctly, he knew as soon as she did that he, what his role in the greater picture was like, he knew what his, his whole character arc and he was supposed to keep it like super hush hush. And like, no one was supposed to know. And he was supposed to sort of subtly play it, which is why I think he did such a phenomenal job as Snape. And I, we don't get enough of him in this last movie, which is kind of one of my complaints. I wish we had a little more of him because I th- we got a little more of him in the book, um, and because he played such a vital role and his uh, the flashbacks and his mom and like the, the the children like the story of all the childhood like it it's heartbreaking and it's beautifully heartbreaking and it's one of the I mean he's one of the best and it's one of those characters where you are so convinced he's evil. And he's so convinced he's just a dick all the way through the series. And then you get to the end and you're like, oh my God, I'm completely wrong. And Harry has that moment too. And and again, don't judge the book by its cover, you know, give the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, he saved him many times. And it's just, it's just beautiful is what he is. And I miss Alan Rickman. And now I'm going to oh, cry. <laughs> yeah.
1: No kidding. I, I'm... I'm right there with you because I I love the way that he plays the scene for his death. You know, he comments about Harry having his mother's eyes and that's actually the last time anybody says that to Harry in the story because everybody's been saying that to Harry throughout the books. At least, I feel like, once a book he hears that. And this time it finally comes from the person who it's the most important to hear it from because it had the most impact on the person he heard it from. And you actually realize why she's been harping on that for so many books. It actually meant something. And I I really like that because it also was a great part of the the end of the story, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but isn't as well done because when... Harry faces off with Voldemort. It's not really about a big battle between the two. It's more about the SmackDown conversation that Harry gives him before he tells him, Do you, you sure you want to do this? Because it's the information that Voldemort is incapable of understanding that's really his defeat. He's just incapable of understanding that there's a deeper magic still, just like in Narnia. There, there is the deep magic that's been written before the beginning of time that's always been there. He, do, he can't get it, and that's love. He can't understand it. And it's Snape who starts the whole thing off because his, his act of love running to Dumbledore to say, they're coming after the Potters. You have to do something. Why? Because I, I love her. And I don't care if she's with me. She just needs to be alive. And so does her family. Mm -hmm. And that the one part of, of Snape that he can't let go of is his pride. So that nobody will, in the end, know the best part of him. But what's beautiful is, in the end, Harry gets to know.
0: And it starts like the first introduction to Harry and Snape you get is in the flashback um, that we, we see from the tears where, you know, he's all angry still and Dumbledore just stops him and he's like, Snape, he has her eyes. And then that was his last phrase too. It's just like, it's one of those moments where you're like, you can't write this. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. <laughs> this is It's just, it, it's that like hits you real deep, you know? And it's something it gets so you in the simple. Fields. It hits you in the feels. Yeah, sure does. Mm.
1: Oh, it it really is a, a powerful story, and and
0: it's also where you learn that Snape's Patronus is his mom's Patronus. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that all the times he thought he was seeing his parents, he was seeing Snape, and that it was sort of an extension, you know, of his parents. That you know, and it, it, to me, it almost speaks on a child level to people too about. Um, your parents, right? Because a lot of kids and a lot of adults still are like, well, my mom or dad was super mean to me growing up, you know, that tough love thing. And it's almost like Snape's exhibiting that, like he loved Harry, even though he never would openly admit it to anyone except for Dumbledore. And even then it was like back turned, I'll finally say it. But he did everything he could to help Harry all the time. And Harry was never able to appreciate it. Like with Snape, he was only able to sort of, you know, honor him in his passing, and it's just, it's it's real. It's a real feeling and a real thing that people experience. So it's really, she hits us in the feels like one, it's a one two right there.
1: Well, and and it's it is a a neat thing to watch because when you think back on the story, you also have the revelations from Dumbledore about the fact that there were certain things that Snape couldn't let go of. You know, and and that caused a lot of the friction. You know, Snape, in some ways, couldn't be the better man. Uh, He just couldn't let it go. But that's, you know, in the end, he does everything he can because of his love for Lily to make sure that Harry is safe. And it pays off. And it makes, in the end, too, Snape one of the greatest heroes of the story. Hmm. Because without his work against Voldemort and being the greatest legilimens ever, he would not Harry would not have been successful.
0: And I and love how she does that too with the houses, right? Because
1: mm-hmm.
0: at the very end in the at the the last scene and in the epilogue of the book, when you find out, you know, they named one of the kids Albus Severus mm-hmm. Potter, you you know, he goes, You're named after two heads of house, a Gryffindor and a Slytherin, because it's nice to see that that prejudice because if any if if Harry had any prejudice that you could argue he had it was against the Slytherin house and it was learned and it was acquired while he was at Hogwarts and for me the end of the book just ends with him being like it doesn't exist (laughs) let it go people and I think that was just a nice touch too
1: yeah well you know and it helps when you've uh, stopped the greatest dark wizard of all time So, you know, it gives you You a bit of leeway to be able to say those kind of things. And I think, you know, all that we talked about is this Snape, love, everything else. I think it's fantastic that, too, one of the most innocuous parts, so at least we thought of Harry Potter, wands, really comes into play. I mean, it's one of the first things that we learn about in the story. A wand chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. Mm -hmm. It's not always clear why. And that comes into play. But I don't think anybody, you know, ever reading the first book thinks, oh, wand lore. That's going to be the most important (laughs) thing in Harry Potter.
0: (laughs) Right? Who looked at Defense Against the Dark Arts, Herbology, and Wand lore and was like, I'll take wand lore, guys. (laughs) I'll take wand lore for 200. Yeah, Uh,
1: right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think that's the thing that makes it so interesting is because it's another piece of Voldemort's arrogance that blinds him to the true heart of the magic to which he uses. He's not worried about the why of anything. He just wants to have the power that comes along with it. And it's only through truly understanding the whole of magic that Harry finds a way to win because he's in yes voldemort's powerful but he doesn't necessarily understand the why and the how he just knows how to do it so it's like
0: it's like someone who knows how to do the dishes and knows that you put the dishes in the dishwasher and knows that you're supposed to put some form of soap in there and that's how you get good dishes and he's gonna Voldemort's going to be the greatest dishwasher in history, but he forgets to check that he puts the right soap in there and that he understands what the dishwasher's doing and he ends up with a sudsy mess in his kitchen. He's like a teenager learning to do dishes. <laughs> it's it's he just just doesn't get it.
1: No, no he doesn't. And I I think that's um I think it's one of those places where it's that last piece that she puts into the puzzle and it's just really special because it, again it's it's something that's from the very first book that she pulls out and brings all the way into this book at the last part of this book and lets you know it just exactly how important having a wand is what it means to have a wand and and why in the beginning that Ollivander says we, a we wand about chooses walls. the <laughs> wizard yeah. and it's not always clear why and i think that's fantastic
0: well and i sort of wish they had flushed out the elder the, what happened with the want at the very end a little bit more in the movie uh, because if yes. you don't if you don't read the book you kind of have no idea what's going on until after it's all said and done and then they're like oh let me explain to you what happened and it, and you're kind of like okay i'll go with it but if you if you read the book, you ha- you knew exactly what was happening. Like you, you knew why Harry, like why Voldemort would never defeat Harry, or at least you you knew why Harry hoped that he would never be able to defeat him. Right, and that doesn't get f- that really didn't get explained super well in the book uh, or in the movie. And there was one other thing that did not get explained. Oh. Oh, there's
1: a lot of things I wish were done better. But let's jump into that. because, And I think that's a fantastic place to start. Because honestly, the last confrontation between Voldemort and Harry is the most important thing in the entire series. And they completely screw it up in the movie. Because they turn it into an action scene. Yep. When the action scene actually comes before the final confrontation, which is everybody's fighting you know you have the great moment with uh Molly Weasley saying not my daughter you bitch you know the oh, best so part great. of the book it's so great you know you have uh you have the heartbreak of Fred dying yes. and it, like it shatters
0: your Ugh. just every you know, part a million of your little soul pieces.
1: you have uh the the whole thing with Neville killing the snake and all of that and then Harry unveils himself because it's another place where they use the... The
0: cloak. The cloak. cloak.
1: But what it comes down to is this whole thing that, and they don't explain this at all in the movie. One is that Harry gave every single one of his followers the same exact protection that his mother gave him, which is none of those dark spells can really hurt my friends because I died for them. They're cool. They're never going to be hurt by you again. They never explain that in the movie, and it's so frustrating because it's such a huge part. Harry's death has covered (laughs) his friends and everybody that's fighting against Voldemort because he meant to die for them. So that's number one. Number two is that they never explain that it isn't going to be a battle between Voldemort. And Harry, because the moment that they cast spells at one another, that wand is not going to obey Voldemort. It is going to obey and come to Harry because it doesn't belong to Voldemort. And they just don't do a good enough job of explaining these two very key important things. And instead they just make it a CGI fest of them flying around and like having this really stupid battle and grabbing each other and falling and nothing. Which is a really cool
0: visual. But not in line with the book.
1: No, no. And the end is so much better and so much more fulfilling because you know what? You can have the big battle with everybody fighting each other and still have it come down to a conversation because the point of the story was that it wasn't a fight, you know? That it wasn't going to be a fight. Because Harry had already won because of what he had done.
0: Well, the actually, and that rhymed. Yeah. And, and the whole point of the book was that Voldemort would be his own undoing. Like, that was the whole point is that he was trying so hard to preserve his soul and to be the most powerful wizard of all time for all time that that was, in fact, going to be what brought him down. Nobody else was going to do it. There was the the prophecy about the child like it, none n- the whole point is that Harry did nothing and Voldemort still like was defeated. Um H- Harry didn't did not fight and yet Voldemort was still defeated. And you know, he he created the horcruxes and and they got pieces of his soul he slowly got killed over time and the whole ending where they have this big dramatic battle um which to me in the book always felt more like a um like a a standoff where maybe they were pointing wands at each other but not actually doing anything, sort of circling each other. Yeah, it's kind of um,
1: like, uh, you know, an old western, you yeah, know, where the guy's like, Don't
0: try it, I'm faster. <laughs> yeah, they're like an old fashioned gun shootout. And Voldemort, you know, is so confident that he's the better wizard that when he goes to kill Harry, he kills himself because the wand backfires and kills him. And he doesn't realize he can die because he doesn't realize that all his horcruxes are dead. So that's the whole point of the book was that he was going to be his own undoing. And we didn't really get it flushed out super well in the movie. You kind of get a, a, a silent scene where he like does the avocadavra, but it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't quite have the same effect. It does. You you kind of don't get the point of what's happening. So uh, it's a little disappointing, and a little anticlimactic when he starts to sort of just peel away like a bad sunburn (laughs) at the end. And no one really, we were watching it. I watched it with my husband this time and we were were sitting there and we're like, nobody knows he's dead. Like, there is nobody in that courtyard. There's nobody paying attention. Nobody knows that Voldemort is legitimately gone. Right, right. And that's (laughs) the
1: other thing that I hate is that in the book, it takes place in the Great Hall. In the Great Hall. And it takes place as dawn is rising and the sun is coming out. And and the the brilliance you can even I mean, you can picture it so vividly in your mind that as the sun rises, darkness is is falling. It's being destroyed for good. And like everything that she's doing is just so epic and it's just so visual in your mind. You can see it. And they just don't do it here. And it's very frustrating. And then on top of that, what they do with the wand afterwards... is not the same either. It's not the same, but it could have been almost the same if they had just had Hermione pull out of her bag, Harry's old wand, have him fix it, and then throw away the other wand. You have two movies to tell this story, and you can't give the fans that part of the story? Are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) Like You're seriously, so angry.
0: it's so funny.
1: I'm so angry because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, legitimately, how long on screen would that take? Maybe 30 seconds. Yeah. And you could still have him throw the wand away because that actually says something really big about Harry that he doesn't want power. That actually is very much in line with what he does in the book, it just does it in a different way. Right. But let him fix his old wand. I forget if in the book and
0: I'll reread it. So it'll be interesting to know, but in the movie when he breaks the wand to throw it off the bridge, which is supposedly destroyed. So I don't know how we're back to a bridge, but we'll go with it. He breaks the wand and, and Ron like wigs out and he's like, what are you doing? Like that is the elder wand. And then he chucks it and, I don't remember if that's Ron's reaction in the book or not, but it didn't really sit well with me because it almost felt like Ron didn't understand everything that they just did.
1: And like they went through this whole thing and Ron still doesn't get it. <laughs> and you're kind of like, really? In the book, Ron does ask Harry because what happens in the book for anybody who hasn't read it, they actually go up to Dumbledore's office. It's and that's the thing. It's this amazing scene. Uh, He goes up to Dumbledore's office. All of the portraits are clapping for him. You know, Um, he has this amazing moment with Dumbledore's portrait. And it's one of the most moving things ever. I don't understand why that's not in the movie. Because it's the point in which everybody's bawling at that point. Um, (laughs) And... What well, I was done. already
0: falling like a baby, so maybe yeah. they just felt like I, I went through enough tissues already. Uh,
1: but this is the point where I get all choked up because it's such a bu- beautiful scene. I actually just reread that chapter, and I was just like sobbing like a five-year-old. It was ridiculous. Anyway, so he is talking with Dumbledore, and he says, I don't want this wand. And Ron does say, are, are you sure? I mean, that that is the elder wand. And he said, it just... I'm going to try something and he pulls out his, his Phoenix wand and he says Reparo and the wand fixes itself. And he's, he picks it up and it's a beautiful moment because it plays to the what we've been talking about with the wands. Yep, that's his and he wand. Says he says feel he feels a sense of warmth he hasn't felt in a long time and he says to Dumbledore... I'm going to place your wand back in your tomb. We're the only three that know what this wand is. And if I die uncontested, you know, if I die a happy man, uh, old in my bed or whatever, the wand's power will be broken. And it's the same thing. But And again, it's, it's just, if there is anything that I've learned throughout this series, stick to rolling. Don't don't deviate, especially at moments like this, because yeah, that, I, there's other things uh, that I'll mention real quickly, and and then we'll move on to some things I think they did do well. Because I want to end on that. I I wish that they had had more of Tonks and Lupin because yes. that needed to be bigger.
0: Well, because you end up with Harry as a godparent for yep. Teddy. And that's never, ever, ever, ever addressed. And they die before he dies for Voldemort. And that's never addressed. I'm pretty sure Fred dies before he dies for for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, there's just so many things that happened while he was looking for the diadem, and so many things that happened while they were looking for the basilisk fangs that like just completely get brushed over that should have been in the, should have been included. If we're watching everyone run around like crazy people in Rebel, at least give me the good stuff too.
1: Right, and, and the same thing with, uh, you know, it's very truncated, the the part with Aberforth and all yeah. of that. You know, again, that's another place where you can add three minutes of film to tell us some of that backstory that you haven't mentioned this. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the shortest Harry Potter movie at two hours. I know. Which means it's a little bit less than two hours because I think it's two hours ten minutes with the credits. With credits, yeah. So that means it's probably two hours. add fifteen minutes to this movie and just give us some of these things because you're you're already making two movies and these are important character moments. Yeah. Uh for this part of the story.
0: Well, and you lost several members of the Dumbledore army as well in before in the first part of the battle. Um and you actually, you actually see one in the movie that's not accurate, and it bothers the crap out of me. You see Lavender Brown yes. die, yep, and she does not die, <laughs> and it's just—it's one of those things where you're like, if I get that you're trying to make you focus on that, but you can't focus on Tonks and Remus dying. Like, yeah, why don't you show me Tonks and Remus dying? instead of just showing me their dead bodies and like you're supposed to just pick up on the fact that they're dead now and they only did that because you bring him but you bring them back as ghosts right before he goes to to die himself like and if you didn't show them dead then you wouldn't know they were dead um it it just it, it was it was like choppy it was it just didn't the flow didn't work for me there was too much going on at the same time but it wasn't like wasn't nicely spread out so you could really understand what was happening it was sort of just all like oh and then this oh and then this and then this it's like that kid at the yogurt shop who just throws everything on their yogurt and you're like do you really (laughs) do you really want gummy worms and like you know boba on your ice cream like and, and you know a kit kat and
1: everything else you're no, you're exactly right. Uh there is there's a real frustration here for me at the end of this film because there is really a lot that they get right, I think at the beginning. Uh I think, you know, when they're going to the uh when they're going to Gringotts, it's great. Uh you know, um when they come back to Hogsmeade, that's well done. And then it just kind of starts to slowly go south after that because you don't spend enough time with Aberforth. The way you describe the mirror and how that all happened is just awful. I mean, there's a lot of shorthand that's continuing to go on in a movie that is supposed to be the second part of a big finale. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah, there's just. It, it felt like we. And that's what I was talking about in the last one. I felt like it was slow. And I think it's because if you watch the two together it's it's painful that the pacing doesn't work out you have a two-parter where the pacing just isn't consistent throughout both movies so you get it's kind of slow it's kind of slow it picks up a little bit and then it's kind of slow again and then it's sort of slow again and then it picks up and, and then it's sort of paced normally and then all of a sudden you just get like this load of stuff dumped on you And you're like if you had just sort of budgeted your time a little bit better and showed me less forest maybe we could have taken some time here and cut the movies differently so like if you put them together it's much more frustrating than if you watch them one-on-one and, and i always you, watch you them could together.
1: have done that anyway because you had time it's not like harry potter fans are going to be like oh great the second one's another two and a half hours we'll <laughs> screw <laughs> that i'm not you. seeing you. it yeah no <laughs> they weren't gonna do that um i i do have to say uh some things that i think were done really well the relationships between the, uh, the Trinity, I think, come off really well. Uh, the moments there were great. Uh, I, I did really like, even though it is an awful CGI fest when they go down to the Chamber of Secrets, because mm-hmm. they're on a green screen stage and we can all tell, the moment between him and, and Hermione, Ron and Hermione, just fantastic. And when they kiss finally for the first time and then they kind of come apart and they're like, <laughs> yeah, it's just awesome and then of course when they're holding hands and Harry sees them for the first time holding hands and they're just kind of like get over it um, <laughs> and he just kind of gives them this look like finally uh, you know that stuff was great and honestly the thing that I love and I'm mad at the soundtrack for the splot does a great job of weaving in the original Harry Potter theme throughout the film especially like when Harry arrives for the first time in the Room of Requirement and they play that theme and it's just, it's, it's like pure joy because the heroes arrived and that's his music and we're finally hearing it again in the last movie and he's not stingy about playing that theme quite a few times in the movie. It's not in the soundtrack and it annoys me. It's like- It's not? Uh, no, it's wow. not. There are little hints of it in other places, but it's not that full on like, and even the end credits as seen in the film aren't on the soundtrack like this. That's so weird. It's That's really, really annoying. Weird. Yeah.
0: I wonder if it's on like all the other soundtracks and he was like, I think we can leave it off guys.
1: Well, I, you know, they do that with a lot of things. Um, I, I think the Harry Potter franchise is rife for doing complete recordings of every single film because the soundtracks are so good and so the last thing you know we're talking about things that were done well i wanted to ask you taking the entire series real quick before we get to the ratings on part two what are the things that you feel like the movie franchise does add that are truly beneficial to the harry potter universe
0: I wish I had thought about this one before now.
1: Oh, I am I get paid to ask the big questions. Oh, I know. I mean, I get paid nothing, but I still think <laughs> of
0: them. You get paid in acknowledgement and emails and voicemails.
1: <laughs> and voicemails from <laughs> Alice. Voicemails from Alice.
0: <laughs> um, oh, that's a good question. So, I think this will help, help me draw out what it added. Um, one of the things I think that the movies did for me is that I nothing I envisioned while reading the books didn't pan out in the movies like I, it didn't derail what I thought something looked like it didn't completely replace something for me it felt like what like it felt like what I had imagined um so it did a wonderful job for me Of that. And I feel like it's pretty consistent across the board as well Um, for most people. I don't know that I've ever heard someone be like, well, this isn't what I imagined Harry Potter to, to look like. The movies, I think, did a really great job to bring the franchise to people who hadn't committed to or weren't willing to commit to reading the books. And for all the gripes I have about things that were left off or things that were unclear, I still think it gave a pretty concise view of the universe and introduced it to people who hadn't read the books. And I know I have several, several friends and family members who aren't huge into reading, and they got to enjoy the universe and the world with me, even though they weren't reading. Um, so the movies really sort of brought, bridged that for me and for people know you in could my read.
1: life. As, as as Draco would say, I didn't know you could. read. I didn't know you could read. Yeah, <laughs> you remember that in the second movie like, he, <laughs> <laughs> when he pulls off his library. glasses, you know, because they're they're in the um they're in the it's when they drink quathering. the polyjuice potion, yeah. right? <laughs> and he's like, I didn't know you could read. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, there was some great moments, and I think the movie is. I think the soundtrack was fantastic. I think it's one of my favorite especially to be able to do it for all seven films and successfully eight films, eight films, all films, all the films, um, to be able to successfully do a score that fit all of those films and, and ran real strong through it. I mean, I've been to the symphony several times now where they've done Harry Potter shows and all they play are the scores and things from that. It was, it's fantastic. And you know, I, I, I'm so happy that we have a new area in which we can explore the universe more because I think she did such a fantastic job and the movies did such a fantastic job of introducing us to a universe that I'm so glad we didn't abandon it and be like, oh, we created this lovely universe and now we're done with it. Like, I'm glad we get to dive into it more. Um, So, yeah, I think maybe bridging the gap between readers and non-readers. I, I, that might sound lame, but I'm going to go with it.
1: I I think that you have a great point there because it's honestly the same point that I, I hear about uh, the Kelvin timeline in Star Trek, that it brought people to Star Trek who might not have given Star Trek a chance, and it introduced people to the Star Trek universe in a way that made it appealing to them so that they wanted to go back and try other Star Trek. So I completely understand what you're saying. I think it's it's amazingly valid i mean like that's that's wonderful you know anything that gets people to be like i want to go try the book it's the same thing that happened you know in lord of the rings people went back and read the books because they saw the movies and so uh yeah that's that's perfect uh your call out on the music i think if if there's i can't say if there's one thing but that's one of my top three things that come from the films is the music i mean the audio language of of Harry Potter is forever cemented by John Williams score for the first movie and that mu- that music immediately transports you to Hogwarts or to anywhere else in the Harry Potter universe even if it's one of the other movies you know they're they're still kind of riffing off what he had done and and when they do it best they're usually you know when you're doing a score a lot like when you're doing a Harry Potter book um Just go back to Williams. (laughs) Uh, Just go back to Rowling. Just go back to Williams. I think the production, like you said, the creation of the Harry Potter universe, the look and the feel of it, especially by the time, for the most part, that you you get to that last film. I I have some quibbles with what they did with uh, these staircases in the last movie. Um, I, I can conjure my brain some reasons why they look like that you know uh, but I don't like it for the most part though uh, the castle the the grounds especially when they finally went to Scotland and started filming there for the surrounding of Hogwarts Uh, it just night bus I mean the list is endless of the things that just look phenomenal and then I think what made it all work was the cast You know, the cast added so much to the story. And I think they did such a good job with the casting. You know, the kids could have ended up being crap. You know, it could have just happened.
0: Well, and bravo for, for the effort of keeping the same cast for as much as was in your control for the entire series. Like that is ridiculously commendable.
1: Yeah, no, precisely. And I, I think that those three things, when I think production, cast, and music, the audio and visual language of the Harry Potter universe is set. So now, when I do read the books, yes, I see those kids mm-hmm. uh, for the most part. I see, you know, Snape as being Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. You know, I see Dumbledore as maybe a combination between Richard Harris and. Kind of both of them put together actually i, I yeah. kind of kind of picture them somewhere in between um but all of those things I think play out really beautifully, and so there's a lot that these movies do that are wonderful for the Harry Potter universe and so I guess in the end, if we're gonna just kind of look back specifically at Deathly House part two uh what is what's your rating for this one, drea?
0: Um, well, before I give my rating, I'm going to ask you a difficult question since oh. you asked me a
1: difficult question. <laughs> oh, here we I go. like
0: it. Okay. So we've talked about you. You started at the very beginning of the podcast. You mentioned that um, Rowling kind of had a game plan for everything from the beginning. So what thing are you either thankful for that she kept to or what thing are you thankful for that she changed? Because it's Thanksgiving next week. So let's let's, let's go with it. Let's go with thankfulness here. So I am thankful that Rowling did not kill Hagrid because that was the original game plan. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know that
1: I would have been able to handle that. No. Oh, God. That is a good one. I actually think that uh, the same thing, she had thought about killing Mr. Weasley too. And she did not do that. So I'm thankful for that. Although she did end up killing both Tonks and Lupin, and I don't think that was originally part of the plan. Hmm, so I don't, think, I
0: don't know. I, it felt like I she was remember. sort of... Well, I feel like it had to be because she was sort of setting Teddy up to have the same experience as Harry, but different. Like, we're st- we're ending and beginning. It's the circle thing, right? You end with Voldemort, or you start with Voldemort killing Harry's parents, and you end with Harry adopting an orphan as a godson because... Voldemort killed the orphan's parents. Like, I sort of felt like it was cyclical, so it had to be in her game plan. But I don't like that she killed them.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. Uh but I I think I'm I'm really thankful that for the most part Rowling had a game plan and she stuck to it. She didn't go in and make major changes and and that creates a cohesion to her story, especially if you read the books. You'll be amazed at what happens as we reference in the movie you pull mm-hmm. little bits and pieces from everything that you never would have known were going to be important and they have a major impact on the very end of the story so i i think if anything i have utmost respect for the genius that she is that she is it, yeah yeah so and it makes me comfortable and i'll address this right here before we get to fantastic beasts and where to find them next week it makes me comfortable Rowling is in charge of the story development for that series. Rowling came out and said, this is going to be, they, as a placeholder, they said, it, we we're thinking it's going to be three movies. That's our I heard, placeholder. I
0: heard five.
1: She comes back and tells them as she's working on the story, I think mm-hmm. this is five movies. I gotcha. It's her decision. Now, obviously... You know, Warner Brothers is going to say Mazeltov. You know, because <laughs> it means it makes more some mo- money. <laughs> it means more money, but it's Rowling's creative decision in the storytelling. And if I know anything, Room Rowling, she understands how to plot a series. So I'm not worried. Uh, yeah, and that yeah, so that makes me very excited to get to Fantastic Beasts. And where to find them? Which is fantastic too, because by the time this drops, Drea. I- Everybody's going to have seen the movie probably already. (laughs) Or they'll be seeing it that weekend. Or for the (laughs) third time or something like that. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, yeah. So, number two, uh, what do you think? Uh, Out of five, I will give it
0: a four because I like things ending. Like I like the wrap up of everything coming to its conclusion. And I liked it better than part one. But I still think it had potential to be better. So I can't give it five. Um, I also probably will never give anything five. <laughs> That's just my own thing. There's always room to be better. Um, but I'll give it a solid four. A solid four.
1: I like that. Uh, and I'm actually right there with you. This movie is a solid four. Mm, 3.75. Four. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, a, it's
0: like a... a of an A- minus instead of an A+. Yeah, plus. I, well,
1: no, let's just say, it, yeah, it is an A-. You're right, yeah. It's not an A or an A+, plus. it's an A- minus, bordering on a B. Uh, you know, anyway. It, it's just it's not perfect, but it does wrap up mostly well, and it brings to a conclusion a story to which I love, and it just makes me want to go back and read the books, and so if you've learned anything from all these podcasts, it's probably... You should should go back and read the books. You should read the Harry Potter books because they're fantastic. And I love that we have gotten to spend this year getting ready for Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Uh, We have amazing associate producers who allow us to do that every week through Patreon. Kentrip, Davis Grayson, Norman Lau. uh, They support this show specifically and the entire network to make sure that everything that we do here keeps coming to you each and every week. We are a listener-supported network, and we definitely need your help to make sure that everything we're doing at Trek FM comes to you. Go to patreon.com slash trek.fm. Just see how you can become part of the team. Every little bit helps. So, again, that's patreon.com slash trek.fm. Now, Drea... I'm so excited because we're going to be back next week to talk about fantastic beasts and where to find them. But uh, before we do that, where can everybody find you online when they want to talk to you about some Harry Potter? And then, uh, you know, what other podcasts are you doing out there?
0: So you can find me on Twitter at PCFChick or on Instagram at Drea Kaufman, and it's C O F F M A N. Um, I also am a. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I am also a host on uh, Educating Geeks. Uh, We are a podcast that helps geeks invite new geeks into your favorite fandoms. Um, So instead of shaming someone or revoking their geek card, as the joke always kind of goes, we invite um, people who haven't experienced a fandom to come and enjoy it with us. Um, So if you hadn't seen Harry Potter, we'd love to invite you to come enjoy Harry Potter with us. Um, And we are at educatinggeeks.com. And all of the various social medias.
1: Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine, as well as on Literary Treks with Bruce and Dan talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interviewing the authors. It's a blast. We've got the 602 Club that you're listening to now, of course. And star wars the 602 club collection that's just all the star wars episodes we do we can find that right there in itunes just like all the other feeds you can for any of our podcasts here on trek fm you can find me doing more star wars with my good friend john mills over on the nerd party network at nerdparty.com it is called aggressive negotiations it's so much fun you're gonna love it check it out on itunes as well we just have a blast and thank you so much for joining us